Good morning, everyone. Uh, would you uh, bow your heads with me as we open in a word of prayer? Lord, we come again uh, before you in prayer right now, just so thankful for the gift of your word that brings us life. It's such a treasure that we have, that we take for granted so often, and I'm so thankful, Lord, that we can take and read and take and listen and be challenged and encouraged. And this morning, I pray that you would speak through your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this weekend is the start of fall break for a lot of college students, and like many parents all around the country, we've been excited to have our oldest daughter home for a few days. Uh, it's been, uh, I know you might say, well, but for those of you who don't know, she's only at college like a couple of miles away, <laughs> and it's not like we haven't seen her in three months. We've seen her quite often, but it's still exciting because you never get tired of seeing your child, even if they've only been gone for a few weeks. It's an exciting moment. And so this week, our whole family has been getting ready and planning and preparing and cleaning her room, at least. I can't say that we cleaned the whole house, but we definitely got your room straightened up. And we've been planning out meals and buying food and trying to get everything ready for her imminent arrival. And as we've been preparing for that, it, it, it got me thinking about our passage today because we're going to see Peter talking about a very similar but far more amazing thing. As we prepare for the imminent arrival of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when he returns. And we're going to see in our passage today that Peter encourages his readers to live in light of Jesus's return. So please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire paragraph here from verses 7 through 11, if you want to follow along with me. Okay. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strengths that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now this is one big chunk of scripture, and although we're going to break it up over the next three weeks, I wanted you to hear it all in one go, first of all, before we start parsing out all the little bits and pieces. Because Peter has one main point to make, the nearness of Jesus' return should impact the way in which we live and act, the way in which we think and the way in which we pray, and especially within the relationships here that we have within the church. And now from that main point that he makes in verse 7, he's going to draw out four applications. We're going to look at two of those today, and then we're going to look at the rest over the coming weeks. 
He's going to talk, uh, encourage us to be uh, sober-minded in prayer, to, to keep loving one another earnestly, to show hospitality to one another, and to use whatever gifts God has given you to serve one another in the church. So this morning, though, we're going to, like I said, we're going to start with uh, just these first two points that he's going to make. But before we do that, I want us to talk about uh, his main point that undergirds this entire paragraph and the, the first topic we're going to discuss today, which is that the end of all things is near. This is often mocked in, in popular culture, right? You have the idea of some crazy guy standing out on a street corner with a big sandwich board on, like, the end is nigh, and people sort of mock that and make fun of it. It's pessimistic and, and hopeless something to be ignored. But for Peter, the imminent return of Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus' return should fill us with hope. Right? The fact that the end of all things is at hand is not a call to give up. Rather, it's, it's, it should drive us to be ever more diligent and committed to loving God and to loving others. It's Peter's way of saying sort of, Carpe diem, but like seize the day, but in a, in a Christian way, not in a self-centered, hedonistic manner, but in a, in a God-honoring manner. In other words, make the most of the time that God has given you to serve God as he grows and expands his kingdom. As a theologian, uh, John Frame, he put it this way, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ, is written for a practical purpose. Not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. That's what Peter is talking about here. You know, the spread of of COVID over the last 18 months has spawned no end of frivolous speculation about the end times. Well, surely this must be the end, right? Well, on the one hand, who knows? I mean, Jesus made that very clear. We heard that in Matthew 24. Uh, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. But that also means that nobody knows. So if you want to spend time reading the tea leaves of culture to try and discern if this is it or if this is it, then fine. But the main reason that Jesus talks well, that the whole New Testament talks so much about Jesus' return is to drive us to action, is to, to encourage us to live differently as a result. Look again at the text. In verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. And then he goes on, he's going to give a list of concrete ways in which we are to live differently as a result. He doesn't say, well, the end is nigh, so there's no point in doing anything. Just whatever, give up, just wait for God to come and obliterate it all. Nor did he say, the end is nigh, so, you know, cash out your 401k plan and stock up on gold and ammo and go live in a bunker somewhere and wait for Armageddon. It's like Jesus is coming back, therefore, this is how I want you to live. In the world, not in fear, not in apathy, but with hope. 
with confidence, filled with assurance, empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And Peter then goes on to give a number of very specific commands for the church about what that would look like. The imminent return of Jesus Christ is the singular, central truth that should drive all of Christian ethics. So that means the, the way you think, the way you act, the decisions that you make, the, the, the ways in which you interact with other people, the ways in which you spend your time, the ways in which you spend your money, the, the focal points of your prayers, all of that should be driven by the recognition that one day soon Jesus will return. And at that time, the dead will be raised, evil will be punished, followers of Jesus will be vindicated, and the creation restored. And in that moment, your faith will be proven to be true. And every choice and sacrifice you made to follow Jesus, however significant, painful, or severe, even to the point of imprisonment and death, all of that will be shown to have been worth it. Assuming you have actually been living for Christ, that is. Because if all your investments are in this world, then the end is indeed something to be feared and avoided at all costs, right? It's like if you haven't studied for the final exam, then of course you're going to be freaking out at the end of the semester. But if your investments are in the kingdom, if you've been straining towards that goal, if you've been setting aside all hindrances and sins in an effort to follow Jesus as best you know how, then his return is going to be something to look forward to. The race will be over. The rewards will be yours. Victory. The early church were keenly aware of this, right? In fact, it was baked into their regular pattern of worship. So every week we read from 1 Corinthians 11, and if you look at verse uh, 26, Paul talks about communion, and he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When was the last time you thought about the Lord's Supper as pointing forward to the day when Jesus will return? But do you see this? This was central to their worship. We share this meal together as a reminder every week that Jesus is coming. You know, we get so easily distracted by bills and chores and, and homework and, and, and everything else, but this simple little meal is a concrete reminder that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And the subsequent challenge is then, how am I living my life now in light of that unalterable truth? Knowing that both time and opportunity are limited the people die far too young, that the relationships are fragile, that there are still millions of people who don't know Christ, that there is endless pain and suffering, that we have resources to help alleviate. And so the question is, where and how are you investing as God grows and expands His kingdom in this world? We have this brief moment 
of opportunity, this tiny little slice of time in which God calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And the question is, what are you doing to make the most of that time that we have left? Jesus says at the end of Revelation, almost at the very end of the whole Bible, surely I am coming soon. And may we all respond like John did with the affirmation, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Well, the the first concrete, so that, that, that's Peter's point for this whole section that we just read. The end is coming and we need to live in light of that. But then, like I said, he's going to draw out four applications. We're going to look at the first two today. And the first concrete application Peter makes is in regards to prayer. Look again at verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Kids, you, you know what it feels like to be dizzy, right? You like go on one of those carnival rides, or I don't know, have you ever played that game? We did this when I was in high school, uh, in like youth group or something, where you put a baseball bat on the ground, and you have two teams, and somebody has to stick their head on top of the baseball bat and spin around 10 times. Has anyone played this? And then you have to, okay, Kari's played. <laughs> All right, some people. Okay. And so you have to spin around 10 times as fast as you can, and then you have to lift your head up and somehow run in a straight line. And of course, the last time I remember playing this, I was convinced I was moving, but it turned out I was actually on the ground, and my legs are going. <laughs> I have no idea what is going on. It's a crazy feeling. And the sad truth is, though, that we live in a time where we're in like a perpetual state of spiritual, psychological disequilibrium and dizziness, being pulled in a thousand different directions, right? Technology, for all its delights, has made us increasingly scatterbrained, where we're unable to keep our attention on anything for more than a few brief moments. I mean, how often do you find yourself struggling to control your impulses, your thoughts, your actions? How frequently do you need to check your, the words that you're saying or the, the speed with which you're responding to things on your phone or online? How many times have you started to pray only to find your mind flitting off to something you urgently need to look up on Google right now, or somebody you have to send a text or an email to right this second. As a researcher at Microsoft who calls this continuous partial attention. So it's not multitasking, because that gives us the idea that we're actually accomplishing something. So it's, it's continuous partial attention, in fact, which means we're constantly living in the state of never really giving anyone or anything our full, undivided attention. Right? So we sit on the couch watching a movie while also texting with our friends. Right? We respond to emails while we're also supposed to be on a Zoom call. 
We're on the telephone with someone while we're responding to emails or researching a vacation or buying something on Amazon. We text and we drive. We text and we talk. We text and we shop. We text and we eat. We text and do pretty much any activity you can imagine. Last, uh, the last time we were at the Dells, this was crazy to me, but I guess it makes sense now. The last time we were at the Dells, we're in the hot tub, and there are people over there on their phones because they're waterproof now. So you can sit there, and the, it used to be like you would go and like relax. And instead, they're snapping and emailing and photographing, and I have no idea what. We don't want to miss anything. So it's not really surprising that we can't focus for a few minutes on prayer because we can't focus for a few minutes on anything at all. Now, I would love it if I could just stand up here and blame all of this on, on Facebook or, or the iPhone or Snapchat or whatever it is. But this is not really a tech problem. This is a heart problem. This is a human problem, and it is not unique to the 21st century. So look at this. This is a cartoon from 1906, and this is a, a woman over here. with. They've got these antennae sticking out of their heads, and this is the advent of the wireless telegraph. And, and it says down here, these two figures are not communicating with one another. The lady is receiving an amatory message, in other words, a, a love note of some sort. She's texting or Snapchatting or something, and the, and the gentleman is receiving some racing results. He's over here on Sports Center. So this is 1906, completely distracted, unable to talk to each other or pay attention uh, to the scenery around them. Or go back further in time. This is uh, the monk, John Cassian, around... 400 A.D. And this is what he said. And so the mind, as it is always light and wandering, is distracted even in time of service, like church service. He's a monk in a monastery, by all sorts of things, as if it were intoxicated. It's like my brain is drunk. It's wandering all over the place. While it's chanting it is thinking about something else besides what the text of the psalm itself contains. When it repeats a passage of Scripture, it, it's thinking, my brain is thinking about something that has to be done or remembering something that has already been done. And in this way, it takes in and rejects nothing in a, a disciplined and proper manner and seems to be driven about by random incursions without the power either of retaining what it likes or even lingering over it. He, he's like a monk in a monastery, nowhere near any technology, and he's like, my brain is out of control, I can't focus on anything. Or two weeks ago, I talked to you about Augustine, probably the most prolific writer in, in ancient history, described similar challenges to this in his own prayer life. And he was talking about how easily distracted he would, he would get by watching a spider build a spider's web or, or a lizard eat a fly. And he's like, I cannot control my idle thoughts from wandering off. It's like, it's like just the same problem you and I have getting distracted by some silly video on YouTube or whatever it is. 
This is what Peter, I think, is talking about. Let me look at the very beginning of his letter. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And then again here in chapter 4, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then again in chapter 5, he's going to say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Do you see this? Technology may make things worse. It certainly does. I'm not going to argue that. But the phone is not the problem. Your wandering heart is the problem. And if you want to be more self-controlled, more sober-minded, more disciplined in prayer, you have to get to that root. Simply chucking the phone away will solve nothing until we deal with that. So how do you become sober-minded and self-controlled in prayer? Three brief ideas, things that have helped me. First is, Set realistic expectations. If even monks struggled with distraction in prayer and in their spiritual life and in church and in worship, then don't be surprised when you encounter similar challenges yourself. The phone will ring. The texts will come. The kids are going to call. Your brain is going to get distracted. And all of that is normal. That is normal. Every single Christian throughout history has struggled with that. Don't quit just because you get interrupted by some weird, crazy daydream and you realize you've been sitting there for 10 minutes and forgotten that you were supposed to be praying or reading the Bible. Don't let Satan drag you into a pit of despair just because that happens. It's almost inevitable. Just expect it. That's part of it. But second, how do you respond to that? Because self-control, especially in prayer, it takes work. It's hard work because it's hard work. There is no magic trick to it. I think sometimes we give in too easily or, or we get too frustrated and, and just give up. It's a little bit like when I take my dog for a walk And I've got to constantly yank him back in uh, with the leash to be like, no, get away from the bush, get away from the flowers, stay away from that other dog, stay away from that tree. It takes work. (laughs) It's fun for him, but walking the dog is effort for me. And and prayer is like that. My brain, I need to constantly be restraining it with the leash, pulling it in. Okay, no, I don't need to respond to that email right now. Okay, I can look that up later. Okay, I can... Uh, deal with that problem in a moment. Sometimes it helps to have like a pad of paper right next to you. So when you're praying you can, and you get interrupted, instead of jumping on the phone or jumping on your computer, just write it down. Give your, just put it on a piece of paper. Be like, okay, it's on the list. I'll deal with that when I'm done. But then a third way uh, to, to grow in this is, is just practice. Right? Prayer, more prayer begets more prayer. The best way to gain more control of your head and your heart is to pray more. There are going to be good days, there's going to be bad days, challenges and setbacks. But don't give up just because it's challenging. One final thought on this. If you find yourself stumbling with what to even say, 
I mentioned this again a few weeks ago, but the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer as a pattern, as a model for us to follow. Now certainly it's easy to just rip through those words and have it be meaningless, just words you're saying into the void. But if you pause long enough, it can be an amazing model to guide your prayer time. And when I've gotten stuck in a rut or realized I'm battling prayerlessness, returning to the Lord's Prayer has been a great, scriptural, helpful, concrete, practical way to re-engage, retrain my brain and my heart in this process of prayer. So that's the first application he draws from that. And the second big application that uh, we're going to look at today, and that Peter makes when it comes to living in light of Jesus' return, is to love one another, to keep loving one another earnestly. Right? This was it, some, I don't know, three quarters of our church came with on the church camping trip this year. This was the focus of our entire camping weekend. We should love one another. This is the way that the world will know you're my disciples, Jesus says, by the way in which you love one another. You heard Chris read through 1 Corinthians 13, the encouragement to love one another. And so we read in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, maybe some of you have seen this before. It's been floating around the internet for quite some time now, but just a little letter for a third grader. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> we laugh because you can relate to that, right? There are so many enormous Global challenges in the world today, political division and polarization and diseases and inflation and wars and everything else. But the real challenge is, like, I got enough mess in my own family and home to deal with right now. That's where the rubber meets the road, where all those nice Christian devotionals that that we fill our lives with, crash into the, the hard reality of the dirty dishes and the piles of laundry and the lack of communication or the poor communication or the miscommunication or the inappropriate communication and the constant exhaustion, the endless chores, and into that mix, Peter says, keep loving each other earnestly, fervently, you know, to help demonstrate this, uh, I brought along uh, someone to help me. Uh, maybe you've seen him before. Anyone recognize this little guy? Stretch Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Stretch Armstrong, right? And I have no idea what kind of crazy, weird superpower this is, but, but when you pull on his arms and legs, it's like a stress relief toy, but... It can stretch in all the entire legs and knots. And I don't really understand what the point of this is for as a toy, but it's a great illustration because this is what 
Peter is talking about. It's easy to talk about love as an abstract concept, right? To sit here and to nod your head in agreement and be like, oh yes, I'm going to be forgiving and loving and patient and kind and everything else. But then when people start breaking trust, talking about you behind your back, right? When, 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 you, uh, when they let you down, when they get angry at you, when you forgive and, and forgive and, and, and all those good intentions that we have just keep getting stretched to the max, right? You pile up in their personality differences and, and, and power struggles and pettiness and, and you had this recipe for disasters just stretching and stretching and stretching. And for those young churches in Asia Minor that Peter is talking to, there was the additional challenge on top of everything else of persecution from, from family members, from people they were related to, from their neighbors, from the community all around them, pressing and pulling and stretching them to the max. And Peter says, as all these pressures are stretching you then you need to respond with a love that's just as flexible, like a willow tree, right, that yields and bends to a stormy gale. Your love needs to bend and sway along with the forces that come against it. Now, I get it. Humanly speaking, your love, you're not made of whatever weird, probably toxic material this guy is, right? You can only stretch too far before you break. But Christ calls us to keep pressing in and pressing on, to forgive as God has forgiven you, to show patience even when you're exhausted, to show grace even when you've been burned, to be kind even when you don't feel like it. Why? Because in doing so, you display the love of Christ to the world. And then look at the second part of this verse. It says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, about 10 years ago when our kids were much, much younger, and we lived in a different house, and I don't remember all the details exactly, but I was having a bad day, and I just completely blew up at the kids for traipsing mud all through the house. Now, all through the house probably just meant like through one little part of the kitchen, but you know how it is when you lose it, it's just like the whole thing is blown out of proportion, right? So from my perspective in that moment, it felt like someone was deliberately trying to deal. It's like they'd gone out and loaded up with shoes with mud, and clearly they were deliberately just trying to make a mess to make my life miserable. That's how twisted my perspective was in that moment. So after everything had simmered down, it turned out that it was actually my shoes <laughs> <laughs> that were the culprit. And as many of you have found out for yourself, Cleaning muddy floors is a lot easier than dealing with the broken relational mess 
that happens as a result of losing it like I did in that moment. So how much easier would things have been if I had paused just long enough to consider that at that time my kids were like eight, six, and four, or six, four, and two, and my wife was pregnant, and they were probably not deliberately trying to stick it to their dad. How much better and easier would things have been if I had paused long enough to say, look, this isn't really wet mud, it's just dry mud, and how hard is it for me to just vacuum it up and move on with my life? How much easier would it have been if I had just paused at any point in there to look down at my own feet to see that I was the one causing the mess instead of rushing to blame somebody else for this inconvenience. And that's what Peter is talking about here, our willingness to extend grace, to overlook minor faults, minor wrongs, not just in our homes, but here on Sundays as well. This love that keeps forgiving, that that Peter's talking about, it's the oil that keeps this creaky contraption called the church running smoothly. That we forgive and we forgive and we show grace and we, we exhibit love towards one another. In fact, every Sunday morning is an opportunity for us to put this into practice. You know, in premarital counseling, we're constantly telling these these young couples, giddy with love and excitement, right? They can't see each other's faults and failures, and they have no idea that down the road they're going to start to get frustrated because uh, their eyes will suddenly be open, and they'll see, oh, wow, I had no idea you had this annoying habit. Well, it's not like that appeared out of the blue. It was always there. You just never saw it before. And the same is true for us here at church. As a first-time visitor or new attender, it's like, wow, what an amazing church. These people love each other. This is so great. And for those of you who have been here for seven, eight, nine, ten years, you know all our faults and failures, the annoying habits, the, the same jokes we start repeating, the, the little weird ways in which everyone acts. Because we see each other every single week and we're in community together and it's irritating at times. And the things that we've once found endearing can end up being frustrating and aggravating. And it's in those moments that you have a choice. Like Peter says here, to fixate on the faults or to forgive them, to keep a silent account of all those relational wrongs, or to release them regularly, recognizing that you are just as much a sinner. I am just as much a sinner. I'm just as annoying as the next guy. And the only way this is going to keep working is if we put into practice what Peter is talking about, loving one another earnestly, constantly, being willing to stretch that love around even the most aggravating, frustrating people and situations. Because we wrap all this up, in some sense, you can breathe a sense of relief. Like you put away your pens and paper, notes, everything else. It's all done. Sermon's over. It's like, oh, great. Now I can keep going. Except now you have to actually start putting into practice all these things we've been talking about. And that is where it's hard. Because our lives are messy and our spiritual habits are inconsistent. And our emotions so often get the better of us. 
And loving others can be so challenging. And feelings of failure wait just around the corner. But I want to encourage you this morning with this. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he went to the garden to pray. And although he went with the disciples, he found himself abandoned and alone in this moment of deep personal need. So while he was doing battle in prayer, they lost their battle with sleep. And while he remained resolute in the face of death, the disciples ran away in fear for their lives. But God's plan for our salvation never rested on the faithfulness of the disciples. It rested on the shoulders of the only person in the world who can carry that weight and see it through to completion, loving perfectly, forgiving completely. On him and him alone would lay the iniquity of us all. All of it. And his love, his love remains steadfast. Even when you go through periods of prayerlessness, or when you lose the battle against distraction, even when your love grows cold and you find yourself nursing grievances and getting easily irritated, He is there waiting for you, extending His hand, offering grace once again, waiting for you to repent, to turn back to Him, waiting to bring you home, waiting to lift you up and help you get back on the path once again, God has made you alive together with Christ, forgiving all your sins, canceling the record of debt that was held against you, nailing it to the cross once and for all. And it's in light of that great gift from God that you are now empowered by His Spirit to live for Christ and for His glory until he returns. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your Son who enables us to do what we cannot do otherwise under our own strength. Lord, we pray earnestly for help in in our distracted hearts. We pray for our help in loving others as you have loved us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.